Heavenly Father, this morning we pray that you might address each one of us. As we open your word and seek to understand it, we pray that you might take uh, from us anything that prevents us from hearing what you would say to us. And we pray that we might be shaped by your word, that we might love you and uh, your son, that by in the power of your spirit we might uh, live as faithful disciples of him as a result of hearing your word. So, Father, please open our ears so that we might hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, last week uh, we began our journey through the book of Revelation. Um, our attention was drawn to the glorious picture of the risen Christ that was presented to John on the island of Patmos. It really is brilliant, isn't it? In, in the midst of the churches, in the midst of a church under threat... It is Jesus who stands victorious. He has the keys of death and Hades. He is the one who has conquered. And his face is like the sun shining in full strength. Whatever opposes you, whatever threatens to trip you up or tear you down, whatever you might fear will undo you. It cannot win in the end because of him. But friends, that extraordinary vision as massively encouraging and significant as it is and is meant to be, is just the introduction to the book. The one who stood there in such splendour did not just stand there. He'd come with a purpose, and his purpose is right out in the open in the very first words that John hears from that arresting figure. They're there in verse 11 of chapter 1. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. The book of Revelation is a message, a message to seven churches. These seven churches in modern-day Turkey traced a kind of semicircular mail route from the capital of the province, Ephesus, up the coast and into the interior. Patmos, the island on which uh, John had been exiled, was several kilometres off the coast from Ephesus, uh, where the route begins. There were other towns and cities along that route and further in, but only seven are chosen. And in line with the number imagery of this kind of writing, seven is the number of fullness or completeness. So I take it that we're meant to see that John was to write down what he saw for the benefit of all the churches. The risen Christ has something to say to all the churches. The curtain was drawn back to reveal what's really going on in the world for the benefit of all the churches. And the point's reinforced in chapters 2 and 3, which we come to this morning, by a refrain that occurs seven times. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's a question for you. Are you ready? Seems clear to me as I look out on you that just about everybody here has two ears, not just one. Are you ready to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches? I remember once collecting my mail, the usual bills and unsolicited advertising, only to find one envelope with gold printing in the corner. It said, from the office of the Governor of New South Wales. 
And even before I opened the letter, I knew that it was important because of who had sent it. It was a communication from the then Queen's representative in New South Wales. And perhaps you've received important mail like that, a message that commands your attention just because of who has sent it. And Jesus says again and again and again, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Write down what you see and send it to the seven churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you grasp it? The glorious risen Christ has something to say to the seven churches and they are encouraged, everyone who has an ear, to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Some Christian groups separate those things out. What Jesus said then and what the Spirit is saying now to the churches. But here one flows out of the other. What Jesus has said is what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I've been in a number of groups over the years discussing some proposed change to doctrine or practice where the cry's gone out, we've got to wait and listen to what the Spirit is saying today to the churches. The Archbishop of Canterbury said as much when he spoke to a small group of us last year. It's as if we're still waiting. We've got no firm idea what the Spirit might be saying to the churches on a range of topics. We need a new word. The world certainly moved on from the last decade of the first century, and so we need a different word, a new word, a, a word that sits our, suits our circumstances. Yet here in Revelation, as the curtain is about to be pulled back, we're told that this is what the Spirit is saying to the churches today. So the question comes back at you. Are you ready? Are you ready to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches? Revelation 2 and 3 contains seven letters, one addressed to each of these seven churches, or perhaps we're supposed to see this as one letter, a sevenfold letter given the risen Christ's assessment of what's going on in the churches during that interim between his resurrection and his return. This is his analysis of the state of the churches in the world. Not the state of some global institution, but the state, state of the local gatherings of God's people. You see, what's happening is not the same in each place. There is, and even then there was, a variety of situations, a range of challenges, some under intense pressure from outside, some crumbling from inside and some, though with little power, holding firm and remaining faithful. This is what Jesus knows about the churches. This is how the Lord of the church sees the churches. Now we could take time and look at each of these uh, churches in detail, um, even though the exact meanings of some of the detail is lost to us. So that hasn't stopped commentators from waxing lyrical, I've noticed. We could just do one of these letters at a time over the next few weeks, but this morning I want to step back and feel the cumulative weight of what the risen, glorious Christ is saying through his spirit to the churches. And in the end, you don't need to know the precise meaning of every detail to understand the message of these letters to all the churches. 
Well, I didn't get the uh, chapters read earlier, but you'll notice if you even just take a quick look at those letters now in Revelation 2 and 3, that they're, they're highly structured. It's very easy to see a pattern repeated in each letter, and I take it that's deliberate. Each letter is addressed to the angel or the messenger or perhaps the pastor of each church. Each letter takes up one aspect of Jesus' character as revealed in the vision we read about in Revelation 1. And because Jesus is like that, just like that, this is how he responds to what he sees. What the Spirit wants the churches to realise is that the grand vision of Jesus in chapter 1 is not just a remarkable piece of encouragement, though it is that. It has consequences. It has consequences for the believer, it has consequences for the churches, and it has consequences for the world. Everything the Spirit has to say to the churches flows out of that vision of the glorious risen Lord. And each letter speaks of something that he knows. Most, not all, speak of something disturbing that he's seen. Most, but again not all, include a call to repent. Each includes that sentence, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And each contains a promise to those who conquer. You see, the obvious pattern, repeated letter after letter, helps you to identify the message of each letter. Listen to the first one. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers... I will grant to eat the, of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The one who is found in the midst of the churches, the one who holds the angels of the churches in his hand, who is not remote and distant from them, he knows. He knows what's been going on in this church. They are courageous in defending the truth. They keep going and they've stood firm in the face of opposition. He knows that. He's seen it all. That does not go unnoticed. But isn't the next bit devastating? But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You see, he knows that too. All the toil and patient endurance and the defence of the truth and the willingness to challenge false teachers, all of it crumbles once this single sentence is heard, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And so the single command that the risen one has in this letter is repent. 
See how far you've fallen. Do what you did at the beginning. What a terrible indictment the Spirit gives in this very first letter. And the warning is, if you do not repent, the church itself will fall. I'll remove your lampstand from its place. And here's the crucial point. He knows. Do you realise he knows? He isn't fooled by appearances. He isn't bought off by the good and the valuable and even the courageously faithful things. He's not bluffed by size or by seeming impact in the community. He knows when underneath all that the love is gone. Even the good things then look different in that light, don't they? So don't keep going down that road. Don't keep pretending all is well, hoping that no one will notice that the love is gone. Face that head on, he says, and repent. That's what the Spirit says to the churches. In recent centuries, local congregations have collapsed because despite their determination to hold on to the truth and root out error, their precision in theology and skill in exegesis, all of this was done with a zeal and a sense of superiority and not with love. And he knows. He knows. It doesn't go unnoticed by him. He cannot be fooled. And remember who he is and what he's like. Remember that vision. At the other end of the seven letters, in the letter to the angel of the church at Laodicea, there's something very similar. Lukewarm, comfortable, complacent Christianity. A church that's neither hot nor cold, and he knows that too. Despite their boast of having made it, they are as vomit-inducing as lukewarm water. And so again we hear the call, repent. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. If ever there was an accurate description of churches in the early 21st century, it's this one, isn't it? Not wanting to be cold towards the gospel, but not wanting to be too earnest either. A nice, moderate balance that won't draw the anger of those around us. But once again, he knows may not be noticed by anyone else, but it does not go unnoticed by him. I mentioned a little while ago that some of the letters, two of them in fact, contain no call to repent. Take a look at the second letter. To the angel of the church of Smyrna. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. How appropriate is it uh, that they should be reminded that the risen Jesus is the first and the last, that he both died and came to life? It's clear that this church had endured great suffering and it was not over yet. Behind the intensity of the opposition they face is the devil himself. 
But notice again, Jesus knows what they are going through. He knows. Just as no compromise or failure is hidden from his view, so no persecution and no suffering, no hardship, no tribulation is hidden from him either. Their faithfulness in the midst of that was seen, perhaps by few others, but most certainly by him. I know your tribulation and poverty. And so instead of saying repent, he says, don't be afraid. Keep going. Be faithful unto death. He doesn't promise the tribulation will go away. There will be some who will face the sentence of death because of their faith in Jesus. Be faithful unto death. Only a few day, a decades later, the, the Smyrnans would uh, have a very conspicuous example of this when their Bishop Polycarp would be martyred for refusing to worship the emperor and to deny Christ. And as he confessed the saviour whom he'd served for six and 80 years, and he has done me no wrong. So he laid claim to the promise in this letter, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And the twin of that letter at the other end, letter number six, the letter to the angel of the church at Philadelphia, again has no rebuke and no call to repentance, for still he knows. I know that you've got little power. And yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. So similar to the church in Smyrna, the message to the Philadelphians is not repent, but hold fast to what you have. You see, the glorious figure in Revelation 1 not only stands in power and majesty before John, he knows what is going on in the churches. He knows the compromises and betrayals and he knows the faithfulness and patient endurance. He knows when apparent fruitfulness to Christ has been undermined by a lack of love, or when comfort and complacency, the attempt to avoid the hostility of the world, have lowered the temperature of our evangelistic zeal. And to both of these, he says, repent. But he also sees the faithfulness and patient endurance of suffering too. And to those, he says, hang in there, keep going, stay firm. How are you going in hearing what the Spirit says to the churches this morning? Certainly worth reading through these letters one by one, remembering the glorious vision of chapter one and asking yourself, what is it that he knows? What is it does he command? What is it that he promises? The pattern in these letters helps you identify the answer to those questions. But the order of these seven letters as a set shows us one more thing we can't afford to miss this morning. In the end, that order is not just the order of these cities on the route out of Ephesus and into the inland in the province of Asia. The pattern in each letter points us to their central message, the powerful, majestic Christ found amongst the churches, he knows. But the order of the letters points us to a threefold danger facing the churches then and facing the churches now. The order draws attention to the three letters in the middle, the letters to Pergamum, Thyatira and Sardis. The seven together are like a funnel drawing you into the center 
You see, the first and last letters, the letter to Ephesus and the letter to Laodicea, both speak of compromise, the loss of a first love, a lifestyle of compromise and lukewarmness. Next to them, the second and sixth letters, the letter to Smyrna and the letter of Philadelphia, both speak of faithful endurance. And both are encouraged to hold fast and not to be afraid. But the three letters in the middle point to the deadly combination of tolerating false teaching, condoning false living, and adopting false allegiance. Heresy, immorality, and idolatry. And all three go together. Whether it be the teaching of Balaam or the Nicolaitans, whoever they were, unrepentant immorality on the scale of Jezebel or the worship of idols, these things corrupt and eventually kill a church. The church in Sardis was told, you have the reputation for being alive, but you're dead. And the sad thing is that these things can coexist with what appears to be believing courage and faithfulness. The church in Pergamum was told, you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Yet they tolerated the false teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. The church in Thyatira was still able to demonstrate works of love and faith, service and patient endurance, and it had grown in effectiveness even. Your latter works exceed the first, Jesus said. But they indulged the sexual immorality of Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess. The church in Sardis had people who had not soiled their garments and who were worthy, yet despite their reputation of being alive, Jesus said they were dead. The three letters chronicle a deadly progression into spiritual death. The generous orthodoxy that broadens the boundaries of what's acceptable until it dissolves into a full-scale embrace of teaching that's contrary to the Bible. And it so easily and so regularly leads to adjustments in what is acceptable in Christian behaviour and then to the denial of God's right to order our lives. And today, even in some places in America, the idolatry is not simply theoretical or abstract, it is blatant and physical temples of Satanism on university campuses. But none of it catches the risen and reigning sun by surprise because he knows. He knows what they're doing. He knows what others may not even notice. He knows how deadly and dangerous it is. It starts out seeming so innocent. Let's be tolerant and accept a range of opinions on these matters but it almost inevitably grows to a tolerance of a range of lifestyle choices and then a range of different gods. And if you don't think that's real, think of what's being played out in the Church of England even now. Hindu idols set up in a Christian cathedral, practicing Muslims preaching in university churches. It's deadly and dangerous and so the call that comes from the risen king is repent. Therefore repent, he told those at Pergamum. I gave her, the prophetess Jezebel, time to repent, but she would not, he told those at Thyatira. Remember what you received and heard. 
Keep it and repent, he told those inside us. Friends, as the curtain is drawn back to give a picture of what's really going on in that period the Bible calls the last days, this is what the Spirit says to the churches. This is what the risen and reigning Lord Jesus says to the churches. This is what he knows. Some of you perform well, but you've lost your first love. Repent. Some of you claim to have it all, but you're disgustingly lukewarm. Repent. Some of you are suffering and will suffer. Keep going. Don't give up. You're not alone. But some of you have set out on that road where false teaching will allow you to embrace false living and will end up in a false allegiance. Repent now before you end up at that terrifying destination. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. So friends, let me ask you one more time. Do you hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches? Have you understood that the overwhelming majesty, glory and victory of the risen Christ has consequences? Consequences that do not change right through this age until the end. It's not too late, Jesus told the church in Laodicea. Repent now. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. It's not too late. Repent. Some need to hold on and stand firm, but some need to change course now. It's not too late, but it soon will be. The one whose face is like the sun, shining in full strength, he knows what is going on in the churches. He knows the faithfulness and he knows the compromises. So let the one who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Shall we pray together? Father, as we hear this word this morning, it is all too easy for us to recognise these things in others and in other churches and not to be alert where these things are dangers we are falling into. And so we pray that not just they, but we might hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And we ask it for the glory of Jesus. Amen.